Welcome, you're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and hear the stories behind the discoveries they make. This week, I'm at Macquarie University, and I'm joined by herpetologist, urban ecologist, and all-round crazy Canuck, James Baxter Gilbert. James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, James. James, I was wondering if you could tell me about your first ever research field trip. My, my first ever research field yes, trip. Yes, do you remember what it was, what you did? So, yeah. Um, I, I Actually, the very first one didn't work, <laughs> uh, which is, is, is quite amusing. I'd been invited to go out on a survey for endangered turtles in Ontario, mm-hmm. and we were supposed to go looking for, for them, and they come out of hibernation just just before spring. Like, yeah. there's still sometimes a little bit of snow on, 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 on the ground. The water is sitting at, you know, single digits. Whereabouts is this? Uh, this would have been, uh, around the Great Lakes. So I was an undergrad still. We were going into our exams at the end of, of the kind of year. Mm-hmm. And, um, I think it may have, it may have, may, may have been even around Easter weekend. And we were supposed to go down. And the day that my professor and I were supposed to leave, she was going to, give me a lift down. I was going to help out one of her grad students. And, um, there's a massive blizzard and we were about four <laughs> hours away. And, um, and I, I'm sitting there at all my, my gear and I'm super stoked. I'm going to go out and, you know, do science with real scientists. <laughs> and I'm so excited. And then I get a call from Dr. Litzkis and she says, you know, James, the roads are pretty bad right now. You know, I have a four wheel drive. Um, I don't know. I don't know if we should, I'll leave it up to you. And just like, Whoa. You know, you're sitting on on the phone still, and at this time, you know, it's still like a wired phone to the wall. And you're standing there, <laughs> and you're thinking like, "Oh my goodness, what do I, 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 I want to look like devoted to science? I don't want to look weak. This is a person I, I want to work with." Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I, I probably don't want to die in like a car wreck on on on, on Highway 69. And you know, I was like, "Oh, like you know, if there's a blizzard, maybe they won't find any anyways. Turtles aren't that snow active." Yeah. So so we we made the call not to. And, um, later, two, two days later, I was sitting in the exam hall and my professor kind of walks by and quietly leans in like it was probably good we didn't go. It was a terrible blizzard. (laughs) People froze. People got lost in the snow. Like rescue teams were out to find them. Like we made the right call. It was a good learning experience (laughs) then, right? I feel like it set the tone for a lot of the other research that I would end up doing on turtles in, in the snow around northern Ontario. So that kicked off your career as a herpetologist yes <laughs> yeah, i kind of did actually <laughs> and i mean that was probably a good a good induction because usually that's how field work goes yeah. you you work within your your limitations <laughs> and and i don't know does that does that make it just that little bit more exciting the the hazardous random side of yeah, research. well, it, it definitely makes each day a little bit different. So when I was doing my master's, um, we had a team of about six people that mm. worked all the time with us, plus volunteers that would come in and people just short term. Um, but we did a very, it was a very rigorous schedule and it was very scheduled. So you had to do surveys at fixed times every day. Mm. You had to track the same couple of animals every two to three days. So it, it was very by the book. Yeah. And part of the research design was everything was extraordinarily comparable, and we knew that we had covered all of our bases because we had that many people working that many hours and doing yeah. the exact same thing. However, no day was the same, ever, 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 yeah. ever. So, 
you know, we, we get a phone call because one of our field techs, actually my sister, tripped and fell on a rail line, split her knee open. The other field tech had to do, like, wilderness first aid and carried her two kilometers <laughs> out down a rail line to get her yeah. back to a car. She got stitches and she was fine. Um, and then another day, I got one of the best texts I think I've ever received. My phone was dying. And I was sitting in a canoe <laughs> looking out in this lake. I was, I, I, I was radio tracking Blanding's Turtles near Burwash, Ontario. And... Um, you know, you're, you're kilometers from anyone, and I'm, my phone has like one or two percent battery left. It says, you know, it's going critical, and I get this text that just says, your sister's being attacked by a bear. Don't worry, I've got an axe. And this was Jeez. my wife <laughs> texting me because she was managing the, the, the other field site about an hour away. Yeah. And then the phone goes, whoop, dead. And you're just sitting in a canoe, and you realize you can't get there to help. There's nothing you can do, and you can't, like, ask, like, a follow-up question because your phone's dead. <laughs> so I just proceeded to keep tracking the turtles <laughs> and met up with them later that evening. It's going to be the most Canadian text message ever. <laughs> Since she's being attacked by a bear, don't worry, I've got an axe. I've got an axe. And what had actually happened was, was she wasn't attacked by, by, by a bear. Je- Jennifer was tracking a rattlesnake. <laughs> and um, when she, the rattlesnake was totally har- 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 harmless, but she had, she had followed it into a wetland. Yeah. And kind of got herself close enough to a young bear, and, and it was a young black bear who then stood up. Mm. So, although if you know bears, he's just being cur- cur- curious and having a look around in long grass. Mm. But it's a menacing sight. And if you weren't prepared to see a bear just out of the grass, yeah. um, Jen was startled. So Jen started doing what you should should do, which is backing up and saying, whoa, bear, whoa, bear, backing away, not being threatening. Um, but backed up so far, she lost herself and didn't know where she was. <laughs> and knew there was a bear in the area that she had startled. <laughs> so she calls Julia. Julia, I need help. Luckily, they all have G- GPSs. So she says, my GPS waypoint is, you know, blank, 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 at blank, 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 mm. blank, U- U- you know, UTMs. And Julia punches it into hers, pulls the axe out of the truck, and starts sprinting through the woods to save her. <laughs> the bear was fine. Jen was fine. Julia was, was fine. But it certainly was... It, it, one of those moments where you realize that your job's not the same as everyone else's sometimes. <laughs> and then did you have a chat with your wife about how you phrase your text messages? It, and it, it hasn't changed. I'm actually thinking that one day I'm going to write a book that's like text from my biologist wife. And it, it's... It, cause it, there's, I, I think she could write one about me as well. But it's, you know, things that make sense when you're standing there, but when you're on the other side, hmm. don't make quite as much sense. <laughs> Well, I remember jumping on a hashtag a while ago that was strange things for science. Yeah. <laughs> it was just scientists, you know, telling stories about the weird things that they find themselves doing they never think they would. Yeah. I think one of them was, you know, one of my favorite ones was someone who went into a grocery store, bought every single can of spam, <laughs> filled their trolley with spam, and then went up to the counter and said, have you got any more spam? And... <laughs> And this makes perfect sense. sketch about that, isn't yeah. there? <laughs> perfect sense if you're a field biologist, but to anyone that's watching in the supermarket. <laughs> we, um, when we were working on these rattlesnakes, we were working on, on, on how to embed um, a transmitter on the snake without having to surgically implant it. Mm. So how do you stick a radio on a snake? It, it doesn't have arms or hips or shoulders mm. that you can like just put a backpack on. Around if if it's belted on, it'll slide off. Yeah. Um. So we came across a paper that had some really cool ideas and started playing 
in the lab on lab snakes on, on how we could attach it. And actually, actually, the paper's just come out, or it's coming out short, short, shortly. You can plug it. If yeah, you like. yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe I'll send the link, and you can kind of okay. connect it along. But anyway, so what we had to buy is is it worked off of the uh, the idea that you could put a piercing, much like an ear piercing, kind of midway down the tail. Mm-hmm. And this kind of acted like an insertion site where you could stitch a little backpack on right. and you could change the batteries out and you can change the thing out and the snakes didn't seem to have any problem with it. But you needed to buy some weird stuff. So we were taking blood samples, so we needed insulin needles and syringes. Um, if we were also work, we were working on snapping turtles, so instead of insulin ones, you used tuberculine ones. Mm. And then we needed to buy some lube because, of course, <laughs> if you're probing a snake to see if it's a boy or a girl, um, you want to be gentle. Yeah. So, uh, so you don't just j- dry jam a probe in there. That's rude. So you buy some KY, um, yeah. you know, the Herper's Choice in lube. And, and, um. That's their new slogan, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm plugging K- KY instead of my, my, my paper. Um, so we, yeah, we needed also some, um, uh, something to kind of numb the air, the, 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 the area. So it was, um, it was kind of like a lidocaine-based injectable um, yeah. numbing agent. So we bought two types of needles, some numbing things, a big thing, uh, a couple of bottles of lube, bobby pins, because they work <laughs> as a probe when you don't have a snake probe. Yeah. Um, and then you're sitting there, and the person's staring at you like, you're really weird. So you try to act normal and also buy a pack of gum. <laughs> and, uh, like, like, just you know, the guy in line behind you staring at you, the, the person at the checkout, she's staring at you, and you're... You just want to say, like, don't worry, I'm a scientist, but that doesn't necessarily make it any no, better. There's nothing you can do to make that situation any better. <laughs> Excellent. Well, it's, it's, it's called A Comparison of Three External Transmitter Attachment Methods for Snakes, and it's going to be coming out in Wildlife Society Bulletin uh, shortly. All right. So, being a herpetologist, it's, you know, it's all about snakes and lizards and turtles and frogs and things. Yep. Was your move to Australia then simply going to the mecca of, of reptiles and amphibians? It's yeah, it certainly did help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, uh, so one of the main reasons um, we came to Australia, or the main uh, mm. reason we came, was uh, 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 my partner in crime and, 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 and publications and gen- gen- generally life. Yep. Um, Julia Riley. Um, so we, um, she got a scholarship to come here to Macquarie University and, mm-hmm. and to do her research on the s- social lives of skinks. Yep. And um, so, so I, I was more than happy to follow, since this is, of course, the mecca of reptiles. <laughs> um, uh, and and yeah, I, I think as far as a, as as being kind of a young person leaving your home and country and friends and family, the idea of going from Canada to Australia was a pretty easy one. Mm. You know, the cultures are pretty much the same. Language is the same. The, the language the same. is the same. Yeah, it's, it's, <laughs> it's pretty normal, except it's a, it's a lot warmer, and there's a lot more of those scaly reptile things that I like a lot. Um, so yeah, the transition was, was, pretty, was pretty smooth. Yeah, because there's like one type of turtle or something in Canada, uh, right? Yeah, so, so in, in the province where I worked, um, there's one species of lizard. That's it. <laughs> there's, there's eight species of turtles and uh, I think 15 species of snake. Yeah. So it, it's not like there's nothing, mm. but compared to Australia where there is, you know, billions of species of just to notice. Mm. Uh, <laughs> or it seems that there's at least yeah. a, 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 a billion species of to, of, of to notice, yeah. The, the yeah, you don't realize that when you go out into your backyard and you see the little 
little skinky things running about that there could be, you know, three or four different types. Yeah. That just look like little little brown jobs. Little brown. <laughs> 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 that's exactly it. I think, I think I, I, you know, the Australians kind of, of, of little brown skinks, you know, outside of Glenn Shade, no one really knows what they are. <laughs> he, is, he is the defining master of what's this little brown thing running around like. Some of us get close, but, but no, one, no one quite grasps it like he does. <laughs> So were you always uh, a naturalist as a kid, running around digging holes? Yeah, yeah. I, I was definitely a, a, a big fan of animals and nature and, and, and whatnot. I think um, I think I was particularly in, in, interested in reptiles. I got my first e- iguana when I was 10. <laughs> and, and I'm going to use this as a public service announcement time. Do not buy a 10-year-old a green iguana. It's, it's, <laughs> what happened? It's a terrible idea. Well, I, it's, they're, they're really cool creatures, and they're amazing and beautiful and lovely but they lived quite a long time, you mm-hmm. like 20 years, um, plus if he's in good health or she's in good health. But they get big, mm-hmm. you know. I think Iggy was about, oh, I don't know, five and a half feet. <laughs> so he was sizable. And the males get quite temperamental and aggressive during breeding season. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's also when I bought my, my first lab coat, because I, I made the foolish mistake of, of wearing a red sweater and going into <laughs> his enclosure. And it was his first breeding season, and his arms had gone kind of orangey red, and he was primed and pumped and hated that color because it meant it was a you know a, a challenge to him. And he leapt off a branch and hit me in the in the chest, knocked me over, and just started biting the shirt. And I took the whole sweater off and threw it in 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 in, in the enclosure and went and got my mom. And I'm like, "Mom, the iguana's gone crazy." And she's like, "Well, let's get you a lab coat so you don't enrage him again." Um, <laughs> there was a lot of scratches and a lot of bites and a lot of whips, and yeah, I think it, it did help me build a background in kind of understanding reptile behavior and temperament and husbandry and care, but there's better pets just to like start off with, yeah. um, you know, a good corn snake or, or, or like a gecko or something or a bearded dragon makes a great pet, um, as a starter child's pet, but you know, go for the gusto. And <laughs> <laughs> well, my first reptile pet was an Eastern water dragon mm. and they're Big bitey things. They are. And not much has changed because you're now working on big bitey water dragons. Yeah. So, so I, I, as, as I said, I think, <laughs> I think it did set me up for this career. Um, because yeah, now I work on Eastern water dragons here at Macquarie and, um, and they're big. So for people listening, they're big, sort of long as your arm, gray, stripey, fast bitey things. I call them rage lizards. <laughs> yeah. Like they're. <laughs> The, the, actually, the uh, analogies between water drag, drag dragons and green iguanas are actually pretty high. Yeah. Like even in like the behaviors and the actions and even the diet and the habitat kind of selections, like where they are as far as niche goes, even the kind of the basic body shape. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, one's in like South and Central America and one's here in Australia, it's Australia, but they seem to have converged on this. Arboreal, sometimes on the ground, sometimes often associated with large bodies of water, mm-hmm. body shape. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they, they, they are, they can be quite a handful. So mm-hmm. a, a large male can get up to a kilo in weight. And a kilo doesn't sound like it weighs that much, but when it's thrashing and whipping and biting, <laughs> a, ki- a, a kilo is quite a little tornado. And, um, and so the males get to that size, females half that. Um, we've been measuring bite force. Mm-hmm. Um, not just by accident when our hands get caught in them, but, um, <laughs> but with a proper bite force meter and some of the males are putting out you know, 500 newtons of force, which is around the same as, as, as an adult human. Oh, so like you know, enough to take a finger off. A fi- yeah, it could be. I don't think they have 
good enough dentition to like just completely shear off a finger. Okay. <laughs> but it's the same bite force that a large dog or, or, or a wolf has. Yeah. So had they had larger, more carnivorous teeth, by all means, they probably could have with that crushing force. Yeah. Um, but luckily their teeth are, although quite present and a little kind of serrated edge, mm-hmm. um, I think it's more for crushing and, and it probably because the males have it and the females don't, their bite force is, is, is a lot smaller, like, you know, 20 to 50 newtons. Mm. I think a big part of it is just male and male combat. So when two males are squaring off, um, much like my iguana and my sweater did, <laughs> what they, they do is kind of line their head to the other one's hips so they could go head to hip. And then mm-hmm. they kind of circle around and look big and scary. And then they'll bite each other over the back hips. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of a, like bite them until they submit. And you can see walking around kind of gardens around Sydney or around Brisbane and, and, and any of the major urban parks that usually have a water drag, drag, dragon or two or 200. Mm-hmm. Um, you can see the old grizzled battlers with these big <laughs> V scars along their back. And well, this is from other males that nailed them. And they probably have handed out quite a few scars themselves. Cause but, you do see these guys a lot just around urban lakes and parks and gardens and things. Yeah, they're, they're, they're quite... For a reptile of that size, and this is this is what's kind of led me to work with these uh, fantastic reptiles, is, is the fact that where a lot of other large species of reptile tend to do quite poorly, you know, in general, reptiles are probably the one of, if not the most imperiled and declining vertebrate group. Mm-hmm. Um, we often hear about amphibians, and they're certainly not doing great. Um, uh, but I think it, it's the reptile, a lot of it's pushed by turtles, but, but reptiles don't tend to do well when people move in. Mm-hmm. And, um, and these guys seem to hack it. And, and what allows them to, to do that is kind of the puzzling thing. And that's led us down questioning why. Mm-hmm. Why can you have a, a meter long lizard living, you know, in the middle of Brisbane or, 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 or in this Sydney CBD in the Chinese gardens or mm-hmm. wandering around the grounds of Taronga Zoo? So, there, I mean, there are lots of animals like this. You know, there are spiders that do better in cities than outside of cities. You know, these lizards do really well in environments. Is there, are there, you know, rules of thumb as to what makes a good urban animal? I, I think, I think, yeah. I mm-hmm. think there, pro- there probably is. Um, urban ecology is still kind of blossoming. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, it's been around for a couple of decades, but when we think about how long medicine's been around and crystal uncovering stuff, it, it's young. It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's a neophyte discipline. And, um, but at least with, 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 with vertebrates, a lot of it was spearheaded by birds. Mm. So people walk outside and they see these beautiful birds and they wonder how did they, are these birds doing it? And there was some really cool kind of groundbreaking, um, classifying of different types of birds as, or, and, and that can kind of be applied to all sorts of species and whether they're urban exploiters and their mm. populations increase because the people are around and build things. And these are things like pigeons. Or ibis here in Sydney. Or ibis turkeys. Yeah, yeah. Or, or raccoons back in my <laughs> homeland. They're trash pandas. <laughs> um, but they're, it's, they, they seem to do better and their populations boom because of us. Yeah. And then there's other species that, although they don't decline, they don't thrive, but they persist. Mm. So these are kind of urban adaptable. And they usually have to be tied to some type of habitat that they live around, but they can persist and, and, and do well enough where mm. people live. And then there's species that are just urban avoiders. And as soon as we build it up, they, they leave and don't ever come back. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's looking at kind of how groups fit in. I think it'll take a few more years, but down the road, it, I, I think it would be amazing if we could do this kind of massive holistic looking at taking the spiders, taking the birds, taking the, the mammals, taking the, the reptiles and 
putting them all in this massive meta-analysis paper and saying, like, you know, looking at all the traits that give them an, an edge and an advantage and seeing if there is these rules of thumb. Mm-hmm. Um, at least looking at the birds, you know, it's, it, it's, it's important to be able to exploit certain harder habitats. So if you're, like, a cliff-dwelling species, like how pigeons were originally, you'll mm-hmm. do better if, if there's a lot of, like, skyscrapers and buildings. Um, if you're able to, to either be social or, or, or put up with or be crowd-tolerant. <laughs> That's a good one. Crowd yeah. tolerant. Um, it's something I'm not. But <laughs> if it's not a good I'm definitely. That's why I live up in Barra. <laughs> I can wander into, into like the woods and be at peace. Um, uh, it, it, a little bit of irony that I work on urban ecology, but <laughs> but um, but if you can be crowd tolerant and 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 um, and kind of put up with an increased density, that if you either have to defend your patch really harshly. Or maybe you can just be more accepting and yeah. say, okay, I don't mind that we're crowded here. We'll all get, get along. And that's one option. Or you go completely aggro and, and, and say, like, I'm gonna, I, this is my little patch and I need this patch and everyone mm-hmm. can, 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 can take a hike. Um, and that's one of the aspects of dragons that we're going to hopefully get around to, to looking at. We're collecting the data on it now with this, per, this performance measure of bite force and then overlaying that with the, amount of dragons and the density of dragons in that area and then overlaying that with the amount of scarring and the amount of right. wounding that we see on the individuals and then we can kind of overlay that with some of the personal or personality and behavior stuff that we're doing in the lab with the hatchlings to see if populations are more bold more aggressive mm-hmm. um, if that's a heritable trait in the population and how does that compare with their bite force how does that compare with their density yeah. to kind of see if how the dragons solve that problem so you're looking at so you dragons in urban areas, and then dragons in less urban areas. And then dragons in really wild ones. So and we're kind of going across the spectrum yeah. and comparing populations. We have about 12 or 13 populations around Sydney that we look at right. um, across this urban gray gradient of like how many people, how much um, infrastructure, how much green space, how much freshwater, how much salt, how much this, how much that, all got thrown into this big model that... Mm after you shook it hard enough, kind of put out this really cool value um, that that we use to define a certain site's urbanness. Mm. And so if yeah, lizards in urban areas turn out to be more aggro or something yeah. than ones in less urban areas, then you're showing that, that, that either they've adapted to the environment or they're just responding to the environment yeah so so it's it's often hard to tease apart that mm-hmm. and that's one of the things that's come out in, in a lot of the urban ecology literature is is this kind of localized rapid adaptation and and it's heritable it's kind of a precursor to kind of evolving to an ecological problem mm-hmm. or is it just something that's within them that, that, you know, water dragons, for example, are kind of unchanged for the last 20 million years. Mm. They've dealt with a lot of different types of habitats. Um, so maybe, maybe just within their genes is the ability to be flexible mm. and, 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 and to have more, more of a plastic response. Yeah. So when looking at any species and any kind of aspect of, of them w- with regards to comparing urban to kind of wild types, it's tricky to tease that apart. Yeah. So luckily, in at least one aspect of what we're looking at is is the morphology. Mm-hmm. It's how the dragons have, um, how they grow and how their body shape is in respect to where they're from. Mm-hmm. So um, there's, there's some fantastic work being done uh, uh, up in Brisbane uh, by uh, Dr. Celine Freya's lab and her amazing crew, um, and, and 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 they're 
they're they're coming out with, with some pretty cool work that's demonstrating that dragons from urban and wild populations are differently shaped. Okay. So within urban, they're shaped differently, and between urban and wild, they're shaped differently. Yeah. And in, in working with with them and collaborating with them, we, we put together some really cool experiments here where we're looking at kind of, um, if we take hatchlings, you know, the day they hatched out, the day they're born, we'll bring eggs in, in into the, the, the lab, and these will be clutches of eggs from both urban and wild parents. Yeah. And we can kind of split these clutches and raise them in different habitats. So we've simulated urban habitats here with a lot of like paving slabs and concrete and lawn fur, fur, cigarette butts, furniture. We, and... we tried for more just the actual <laughs> landscape instead of the the, the pollution aspect. That, that confounds it quite a, a bit. But I wanted to put lawn gnomes and plastic fluff fluff mangoes and stuff in, in there. So um, and then we have wild habitats where we have twigs and branches and shrubs mm. and, and and standard vegetation and native vegetation that they would encounter. Yeah. So we can split the clutches and raise siblings um, half in wild habitats and half in natural ha- ha- habitats right. and have them from wild and urban parents in both. Yeah. So at this point, we can test the hypotheses against each other. Mm-hmm. Is it due to their origin populations, their grandparents and great-grandparents and great-great-grandparents that have been experiencing nat- natural selection mm-hmm. and selection on them to be uh, better at dealing in certain habitats. So, mm. so is this a heritable trait? Um, is this localized um, rapid adaptation? Or is it plastic? Mm. So if they were all shaped the same, depending on what habitat they grew up in, it would be a plastic response. Yeah. And if they were shaped the same based off of their origin populations, then we know it's a heritable, or, or it, we, we, we can theorize it. it's, it's a heritable kind of more fixed mm. adaptation response. It's a classic nature versus nurture almost. Well, know. and then the big question is, it's probably a bit of both. Eh? And so, <laughs> so, <laughs> so we are doing the experimental nature versus nurture, which is, and then we're also looking at wild adults that have grown up there as well. Mm-hmm. So we can kind of make some inferences from what we see in the wild to what we've done experimentally in the lab. So hopefully yeah. in the next year or two, we'll be able to have a really cool picture of not only, you know, that they are distinctly shaped, but that they're distinctly shaped based off of either a plastic response or, an, mm-hmm. or, or a localized adaptation response. And then we're going to hopefully run it up with some performance tests that I haven't quite designed yet. Um, but seeing <laughs> if these, traits of these different body shapes for the different habitats if it's actually beneficial mm-hmm. so being urban shaped does that make you better at doing stuff in an urban environment like oh, right. clinging the rocks or holding on or climbing or getting on under stuff or or in the wild is having a that specific wild shape better mm-hmm. for holding the twigs or climbing or swimming or jumping or all these kind of things yeah but the moment you're going out and you're looking at um you know, the clutches of eggs and to get those Eggs, you need to catch pregnant mothers, essentially. How do you do that with well, these flighty dragons? They, they are flighty. And uh, a lot of people see them in these urban parks or settings or along. A great spot is the boardwalk at Manly. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and you see them and you get pretty close. Yeah. You can kind of like take a selfie. And they'll <laughs> sit there and they'll stare at you like, well, what do you bother me for? But they won't run. And, um, but if you go out to like the wild, you know, they'll see you 50 meters away and be off like a bolt of lightning. Yeah. Um, and when they dive in the water, they can hold their breath for like 45 minutes. So if they want to yeah. evade you, they just go aquatic and yeah. you lose them. That's the name water dragon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's tricky. It's, uh, one of the best ways that we've found is, um, 
I, I get to dig that back down into my Canadian roots and use a, <laughs> you, and use a, a, a canoe. And we'll go out in a canoe at night with head torches, mm-hmm. and you go around and try to figure out where they're sleeping. Yeah. And so, so in the wilder settings, they're usually around a river, and they'll sleep in the branches that overhang the water. Okay. And if they wake up and they feel scared or threatened, they just let go of the branch and fall into the water, and they're safe. Yeah. So we need to kind of stealthily paddle around <laughs> at the edge of the, the bank under the trees that overhang it and look for little sleeping dragons. Well, not necessarily that little, but um, sleeping drag dragons. And then once you've spotted them with, with the head torch, you have to go dark and turn the head torch off or they'll wake up. Mm. Then paddle under them. And if it's a low enough branch, you can just reach up and grab them. If it's a, if it's a, if it's a taller branch, you just need to kind of extend a net over the water and then turn the light on, and they'll get scared and try to dive into the water, and you catch them in there, and I, yeah. in like a fishing net. <laughs> so you're sneaking up on dragons. You're sneaking. In I'm in their f- sleep. In their sleep, and then bagging them and bringing <laughs> them back to the lab. Effectively, I'm the CIA for dragons. <laughs> back in the '60s, where they would just you know black bag some people and bring them in and, and interrogate them, yeah. and then hopefully cut them loose again. So well, yeah, so that's what I do. I I, I I I capture them. I bring them in the lab. And we hold them for a very short period of time. Um, and then we, 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 um, we toast them into laying their eggs in the lab and then we bring them back as soon as we can. So it's kind of like an, it's also could be an analogous to an alien abduction. I suspect that when they <laughs> go lights. back, they're like, oh, I was sleeping and then there was a bright light and then I woke up in this weird lab and they, they stole my baby and then I think I have a microchip and then I just woke up back here, back here on the river. Do you guys believe me? And the other guy's like, no, dude, you're crazy. Good. I love it. I don't mutilate cows, though, so that's great. That's, that's, yeah. that's one thing James and aliens don't do the same. But you've always worked on sort of interaction with humans and wildlife really yeah you know as the one of the things you worked on was was the effects that roads have on wildlife i mean roads are so you know entrenched in our modern society they're not going anywhere they're just expanding and getting busier is, is this sounds like a bad thing <laughs> for a lot of species that absolutely is and um so so my work on on roads um uh was kind of spurred on the fact that I was a, a, a very avid herpetologist that lived in Canada and, 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 you know, loved turtles. Mm. I think they're absolutely amazing, fascinating, create, create creatures. But of the eight species that I had in the province where I grew up, seven of them are, are at risk in some capacity. They're endangered. They're threatened. Um, and the other one's probably on the decline. It was just so abundant that it's hard to see that, 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 that decline at first mm-hmm. um, but it's probably not doing great either so one of the major threats to this species of creatures that I love so much uh, was ro- was roads the fact that a turtle walking across a road often has to so in southern Ontario you can't go more than a kilometer and a half before you encounter a road mm. that road network's that dense so if you're a species that lives there and you need to get from your pond to your nesting grounds you're probably going to have to cross a road mm-hmm. The turtles aren't known for being the quickest of uh, animals. <laughs> if you're a species that hides in your shell when you're scared, if you get scared in the middle of a four-lane highway, you're toast. Yeah. Um, so when I started my master's um, uh, with Dr. Litzkis, we put together this really awesome group of people um, uh, to, to do all these rigorous surveys that I touched on er- earlier. And, and, and we thought up this 
idea of, well, let's look at and test how effective the mitigation measures that we, that we're currently using. So, um, you know, the, the provincial government had understood that roads were an issue for species at risk and that if we're building new roads, you know, the, the, the species at risk act said you had to do something to help them out. You can't just build a death trap and leave it there. Mm. So as they were building high highways, people and engineers and biologists and highway planners were thinking up ways that you could make sure that endangered species were kept safe. So the basic idea is build a fence, and then they're off the road. Mm -hmm. The problem is then you fragment that into a habitat. And if the fence works, then if you're a turtle in your pond, but you need to get to the nesting grounds, you're now isolated from the nesting grounds. Mm -hmm. That's not good either. So how do you you solve that problem? Well, you you could create some type of eco-passage, right? So so either a culvert or a a bridge or or a tunnel or something. Mm -hmm. And that's a good idea. But then how much... Do you need to invest? If, if you're a company that builds roads, you don't want to be spending cash willy-nilly if you don't need to. So what if we just build one or two? Would they find mm. it? Would they use it? What if we put up 50 meters of fencing on either side or, or, or a kilometer? A kilometer sounds like it's a lot of fencing. Be happy, turtles. Mm. So what we did is we came in on a project and started looking at... We weren't part of the designing pro, 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 pro process. What we were doing is testing the effectiveness of kind of the government standard. Yeah. So it had been kind of dubbed that this was good enough and it was good enough bang for your buck, but it would be effective enough to help the species. Um, so it was built in kind of this, thir- well, we did 12Ks, but it was a 3K specific zone that they fenced mm-hmm. and put culverts in. Big, beautiful, massive culverts, which was awesome. Um, and we came to see mm-hmm. if it worked. <coughs> Sorry, a culvert? A culvert. So kind of the tunnel that goes under a road. Okay. So originally it would be for, for, for drainage. Mm-hmm. But if you build it large enough, so ours was two and a half meters tall by three meters wide. It was big. Big tunnels. We, we had yeah. bears and deer that would wander through. <laughs> um, that that this was, it should be large enough so it's not scary and bright enough that it's not scary and, and, and let enough sunlight in so that it wouldn't be too cold mm-hmm. um, to kind of coax reptiles to say maybe use the safe passages instead of crossing this four-lane Death lane, high yeah. highway. <laughs> um, so we did some studies looking at how many reptiles were dying on the roads before these um, mitigation measures were built, and then kind of while they were being built, and then after. And we could compare and see, all right, if we know what the baseline is beforehand, if we then compare it to what's sitting there afterwards, is, is it working? Mm-hmm. And the unfortunate bit is... is and, and this has come out in a couple of papers since then, which is really good that everyone's kind of finding the same thing, is if you don't put a lot of money into the fence, into the barrier, even if you build amazing, cool eco-passage tunnels, if the barriers to, to prevent them from just walking onto the road aren't as amazing, if they're made of a geotextile or they're just made of, like, silk fencing, just so a woven like uh, plastic mesh... Mm-hmm. Nature will compromise that very quickly. Mm-hmm. So plastics degraded sunlight and UV. If there's a big spring thaw and, and, and the, the the ground kind of heaves up a a a, a lot as 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 the frost kind of comes out. Mm-hmm. So you'll get washouts and and, and 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 tears and rips. And basically, what we found was that if if the fencing between the culverts wasn't a hundred percent reptiles would find the gaps. Mm-hmm. And then if they found the gaps, they'd get onto the, to the 
the road, and if they got onto the road but encountered a fence on the other side, they'd yeah. kind of ping-pong back and forth trying to find a way off the road, <laughs> and which actually increased their chance of being killed. Yeah, they're just going to get stuck between fences, keeping them on the road. And they stay on the road longer, and the longer you're <laughs> on the road, the higher chance that you'll get hit by a truck. So, um, what we found was that this kind of partial mitigation, or mitigation that was subpar, mm-hmm. instead of being better than nothing, it was actually worse than nothing. And that the, the, the mortality rates actually increased by 20 and 25% for snakes and turtles, respectively. So it was more dangerous to build shoddy fencing than it was to have nothing at all and just let them <laughs> die at, at a regular rate. Um, but that still wasn't sustainable across the board. So it was a kind of really cool project where, where we were able to make some pretty obvious statements. Mm. Like, like it's, there was no question. If you found 20% more dead stuff, um, that's a problem. Yeah. So, um, since then, they've been increasing, um, their, the materials that they, that they use and trying to use different types of materials. Um, when, when, one of the com, com, communities that we've worked with a lot was Magnetron First Nation and they operated as, as our control site. They mm-hmm. had the same stretch of highway 50 kilometers south and it wasn't being upgraded yet. Mm-hmm. So we could compare all the, the before and after stuff at our site with the before and after stuff at their site. So this study design is called a, a, a BACI, a before-after control impact mm-hmm. study design. And it helps tease out a lot of the environmental var- variables, which may inflate or, or, or reduce your n- numbers just because of random yearly things. Yep. Um, but the community was amazing and, and saw the work that we were doing on the highway and saw the potential that whatever I was finding at my study site could be used to inform their progress in the future mm-hmm. so when the highway their section of highway was upgraded and from two lanes to four lanes and rebuilt they could say you know we worked with the guy that tested that we 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 have the information to say this isn't good and this is good mm-hmm. and this is what we need to do to make sure that our species on our land are protected mm-hmm. and, and so i i i we worked really closely and there's there's some amazing people there doing, doing some very fantastic work so, so that even just being a control site ended up having this huge benefit, um, uh, yeah. e- ecologically in the region, and and uh, and hopefully when their highway is is built, um, it becomes the gold standard for Canadian road <laughs> mitigation. Yeah, I mean you see these just driving around Australia, all the little. It's like bridges across highways. Yeah, possums are going across. Possums or, or koalas seem terrifying. <laughs> if I was a possum, I wouldn't want to. Climb across <laughs> it's 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 true. It's but but um, I, I, if they're building them, hopefully they've also done that background. Yeah, with like, does it work? And and will they 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 use it? Luckily, stringing a bit of like rope across. This is nowhere near as expensive as building a bridge. So if, yeah. if, if it actually works and it's that inexpensive, I'm like, just give them some rope. Yeah. Um, that would be amazing. It's um, funny, yeah, because if we would look at a road, see a tunnel, and go, I'm going to go through the tunnel, but we don't know that that's what's going through a turtle's no. mind. Well, they just so, want to so, cross a road, or they just want to walk in a particular direction. Well, that's kind of, it's, it's kind of it. Is is I know I need to go over there, and yeah. I've been walking through this kind of open grassy field. My wetland's way over there. I could go through this scary t- tunnel or continue in the bright sunshine that's <laughs> been safe for the last six days while I walked. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go with the sunshine option. It's what I know. It's what feels good. But what they don't know is, is that the highway has traffic. And, yeah. and, and, and um, so, so the kind of key f- from our stuff is we actually did some behavioral 
assays on the, the turtles to see how they would, you know, if they would choose to, or, or um, what do we call it? A willingness to utilize experiment. <laughs> and it was, would the turtle be willing to walk through the, 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 the tunnel? And they were more prone, they were twice as more prone to say no. Mm-hmm. To say, sod it, I'll just walk around the fence. Yeah. And the, so what that meant was, if the fence was shorter on, enough to be in um, their dispersal distance, so if you take a the, the their home range, you kind of just square root that. Mm-hmm. It gives you a rough estimate as to their dispersal distance, which is roughly how far they're willing to walk to get around an obstacle. Mm-hmm. Um, so for our Blanding's turtles, it was 600 meters. So if the turtle got to an eco-passage, looked at it and said, I don't like that, they would be willing to walk 600 meters to, to kind of circumnavigate that. Oh. So you, yeah. <laughs> so you would need 600 meters of fencing, or they would just kind of walk it and get around, cross get the road, the road yeah. and then get hit. So... That's that's a pretty far distance. Yeah. So it's a little turtle, <laughs> especially if if um if there's a hole or a rip. So even if you built 600 meters of fencing, but it got compromised by a flood or a washout mm. or just a rip or a tear, and it, you know if it walked 300 meters and found a tear, bonus, and it would get through the the tear and walk out. Mm-hmm. So that's where it comes into the if you're going to be putting the money and the energy and the time and the effort into doing it, it's much easier just to do it right the first time. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, we priced out our fencing was about thirty dollars a meter to install, whereas if to to do it to a one meter concrete wall would be about three hundred dollars a meter, mm-hmm. so a ten times a- increase. But if every year you had to go back and rebuild that fence, it's just plastic, so you yeah. just replace it. But if you replaced it for ten years, you've now broken even, mm-hmm. and I can, I can assure you that a concrete wall usually lasts more than ten years, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> So if we built the mitigation structures with the same rigor and the same attention to quality that we build roads with, because we build roads to keep people safe. Mm-hmm. So if we built them with the same material and to last the same amount of time, I think your average highway has a life expectancy of about 40 to 50 years before you need to completely redo it. Mm-hmm. Um, so 40 to 50 years of mitigation means that for 30 to 40 years, you're not investing in mitigating. And you're basically saving, or you know, that much more money. So you save three to four times more than you'd spend initially. Mm-hmm. So this is the issue of convincing a person that they need to spend three hundred dollars a meter to protect this turtle. Yeah. <laughs> but if you can have, if you can put in long-term planning, it makes monetary sense. Mm-hmm. It's difficult to argue for long-term planning. A lot of governments don't last more than four years or five years or Mm. three years if it's municipal or whatever it is. So if you only have to think about your budget that year or your budget for your four-year term, who cares what's going to happen in 10 years? It's not going to be your problem, Mm. which is a bit of of, of an issue when you get people that are put in charge of conservation that don't aren't as passionate about conservation as you might be. Mm -hmm. Uh, So selling that case becomes part of your job. And I actually had no idea when going into my master's and how much y- you would need to sell. Cause I, you know, I was this very happy go lucky turtles are amazing. They're endangered too. <laughs> and shouldn't we all care about endangered species and, and, and the importance of biodiversity and this, that, and the mm-hmm. other. And you talk to a person that didn't come from your same prior experiences and your mm-hmm. same back background. And they say that my job is to build this. And, and if I spend that much, I'm over Bob budget. At that point, I'm not going to get the job because mm. usually goes to the lowest bidder. And then, and then it was this big eye-opening experience that 
Yeah. You really need to work hard at communicating the concepts and communicating the ideas. And you're not just saying we're going to do this and it's going to work, but you need to sell the benefits. And you, there's a whole bunch of salesmanship that goes into conservation mm-hmm. and all of these kind of odd aspects of, of public of, of public relations and government relations. And luckily we had some really great people to work with. Mm-hmm. And, and I think a lot of the ideas that came out of it were quite positive. You know, if you're a government, you don't want to waste cash on something that doesn't work. Mm. That's never good either. So, so it wasn't that we were all, 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 you know, the underdogs at, at all times. We were all working towards the same goal. But it was interesting to see how people's goals are different than your own yeah. with regards to conservation or science or whatever it actually is. Yeah. I mean, you do forget that your own sort of personal experiences really drive your perspective and that can be so Absolutely. different between two people. Absolutely. But I like to think that the fact that we get the chance to spend time out in the field and, and seeing things beyond our little human societies that we're a good judge of you know, big picture things, <laughs> I think. And I think that's a good good take home message that you know we should be, be be building our cities not just to suit ourselves but to suit the other critters around us. I, I, I think it's it, it's the philosophy behind the idea of the study of ecology, right? Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, ecology is the study of all the interactions between damn near and everything. Mm-hmm. So it's the predators and the prey and, 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 and plants and the things that eat those or the abiotic factors that affect them all and the habitat. And it's, it's everything. It's mm-hmm. all of the interactions between one thing and the world around it. And you can kind of, you can either study that and decide, way or also appreciate the philosophy behind it that, mm. that, that you you aren't an, an, an island and, and that even an island isn't an island and that, <laughs> that, that it, it's all entirely woven and connected to everything else and and that the actions of one thing will have these kind of ripple effects to all sorts of other things mm. and of course we as a species make the largest ripples but it <laughs> the human ecology is often a difficult one to talk to people about mm. but but um but there is kind of an interesting kind of that view. Mm. That's a good take-home message, that, and the fact that Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles have been lying to me, and that turtles don't travel across cities via tunnels and sewers. That's not to say that I still don't look for turtles in a sewer. Not that I'm often in in a sewer. I'm going to retract that entire statement. Definitely not on skateboards. (laughs) But if people want to hear more about your research... They can check out your probably the Lizard Lab website. The Lizard Lab is good too. Website, yeah. So, mm-hmm. so I think I think it's Whiting Lab. WhitingLab.com, and named after Martin Whiting, the head of the Lizard Lab here at Macquarie. And you're also on Twitter, right? Yes, I am. I'm on Twitter at, at uh, JamesBG underscore 27. Albeit most of my Twitter feed is um, is just job ads. So Good. I, I, yeah, well, Are you I, hiring people? This is, you no, no, no. It's, it's not even my job ads. I, 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 I started, started um, or I became a member of Twitter or following Twitter or however you would twit. Um, when I started my PhD and, 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 and what I started seeing a lot of was people posting job ads mm-hmm. for either postdocs or PhD p- positions or, 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 or professorships or, or jobs in the government. Mm-hmm. And, um, so I realized that in sh- three short years, I was quickly going to need jo- a job. <laughs> so I started just following people that post jobs and reposting them in the idea just to set up a, a network of people either looking for jobs or, 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 or looking for people to fill jobs. 
Um, so that when I left, I had three years of building this network. So when I needed to find a job, either a postdoc or, or a faculty kind of mm. position or, 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 you know, a grown up job, um, I, I would need, <laughs> I would have this network on Twitter that was always posting jobs. Mm. Um, so if you're interested, uh, yeah, follow me. Sadly, I don't really talk about my research all that often on, on Twitter. <laughs> I probably should. Um, but job ads galore. Yeah, well, follow JamesBG underscore 27 if you want to keep up to date with jobs in zoology. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, James. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher or whatever podcast app you use. We're on Twitter with the handle at in situ science. If you want to help us out, you can drop us a review on iTunes or just share it about and get your friends and family listening. Once again, I'm James O'Hanlon. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.